you got a Bible, open to 1 Peter chapter 4. We've been in 1 Peter for the last nine months together, and we're closing it this morning, and all God's people rejoiced. 1 Peter chapter 4 is where we are this morning. Uh, we'll be in verses 12 to 19, uh, taking a look at that text there as we return to a reminder about the normalcy and nature of suffering as a Christian in this fallen world. We've been looking for the last nine months at this issue of what it means to be and live as a sojourner. We've said a sojourner is not a tourist who's just kind of stopping by, taking photos, posting them to Instagram and Facebook, Snapchatting them to friends across the world. So it's not a tourist, but they're also not a full-fledged citizen where they've adopted all the values, all the customs, and all the practices of that particular culture in which they find themselves. But a sojourner is someone who's in between a tourist and a citizen. There's somebody who may have a green card. They might be holding down a job in a particular place. Right? They might be investing in people. They might be a part of a community, but they, have a, they haven't adopted everything that that community has adopted, but they love in such a way, and they get their lives away in such a way that's different than what a tourist is, just kind of passing through. So sojourners, we've said, are citizens of God's kingdom that are living among the kingdoms of this world. So their first and, and foremost allegiance and, and, and affection, their highest love and their deepest loyalties are to Jesus, no matter what the, the culture in which they find themselves currently says their affections and allegiances should be. So we've been looking at that all throughout, this, all throughout Peter's letter over the course of these last several months. And we come this morning to, to kind, of a, 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 kind of land the plane in 1 Peter at least for a while, right? We, we hadn't said everything that we could say out of this book. We could be in it for three or four years and all God's people sighed, right? But we, we, we've been in it for nine months and we're going to land the plane this morning in this text, in this text to remind ourselves because uh, I think this text does this, kind of ties together a lot of what Peter's been saying to us about what it looks like to live as a sojourner. So would you read it with me this morning? If you've got a Bible, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Peter writes these words. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice and be glad, also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. While doing good. So we want to dive right in this morning and say the first thing that we see in this text about what it means to live as a sojourner, and particularly what it means to have a category in our minds shaped as sojourners with regards to suffering is this, is that suffering is normal, it is not exceptional. Suffering is normal as a Christian in this world. It is not exceptional. In verse 17, Peter says, there's a qualitative difference between suffering for doing good and suffering for doing evil. And he even indicates that at times, it is God's will that we suffer for doing good. And then in verse 12, Peter says this. He says, 
do not be surprised, or as other translations might word it, he says, do not think it strange whenever these fiery trials enter your life. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't wake up in the morning and turn on the news and go, I can't believe what's going on in the world out there. He doesn't just say, hey, it's not strange, it's not surprising, it's not shocking, but he says, not just objectively that it's not those things, but subjectively he says, don't think that it's strange. Don't think that it's shocking. Don't, it shouldn't be surprising. It shouldn't clip your feet out from under you because you should live with an expectation that suffering is normal. It is not exceptional. And listen, we of all people, of, in all places, in all times, across the globe and throughout the course of human history, need to hear this this morning. We of all people in, in 21st century America, we've, we swim in a culture, in the historical and cultural waters, that says that suffering, suffering is the exception, not the rule. In fact, we live in a culture that is so attempted over the course of her 250 years as a nation, or 240, I'm sorry, 240 years as a nation, I was 10 off, 240 years as a nation to mitigate suffering in our lives to such a degree that we eradicate it. Because we don't like to be uncomfortable, we don't like to be pushed, we don't like to be challenged, we don't like to be pricked. And so we of all people in all places in all times need to hear what Peter has to say, that suffering is not the exception, it is the rule if you are a Christian. It is normal, not exceptional. See, most of us in 21st century America right now are waking up in the morning startled, surprised, and shocked at what we said last week was the breeze that has begun to blow against the church in 21st century America. Last week we said, listen, there are place, other places and other cultures and other times where what the winds that have been blowing have been like a Category 5 hurricane that have engulfed peoples. In America, we're waking up now to a stiff breeze, to a stiff breeze of persecution and hostility. And Peter says, it shouldn't surprise you. It shouldn't shock you. It shouldn't startle you. You shouldn't wake up going, I, I can't believe what is going on. Rather, Peter says you should wake up every morning not surprised, not shocked, and not startled. In fact, he's been saying that all throughout the book. I want to give you a brief recap of some of the places that he's talked about that. In one six, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In 2.19 and 20, he says, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 3.9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you have been called that you may obtain a blessing. 3.14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. 4.1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. 4.12, don't be surprised by the fiery trials when it comes upon you. 4.14-16, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Down in verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. 4.19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls. 4.5, 9-11, we saw last week, resist the devil, your adversary, firm in the faith, knowing that the same 
same kinds of suffering are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, God is going to confirm and establish and restore you. So all throughout the book of 1 Peter, he's been preparing a people who were either on the threshold of or had just passed into a momentous amount of suffering in their lives on account of their identification with Jesus as their king and as citizens of his kingdom, as sojourners in this world who belong to another. Peter says it is normal, not exceptional. But this is so hard for us to wrap our minds around, isn't it? It's so challenging for us to to conceive of that you would actually suffer for doing good. That you could say yes to Jesus in all kinds of areas of your life. And as a result of that, that you would experience pain and not a great deal of momentary earthly comforts and pleasure. And we said last week, what happens in those moments is that Satan begins to open his mouth and he begins to roar that God is not good, that God is not loving, or God is not there. But what Peter says is it's normal, not exceptional, to suffer for doing good. Now, what, does that, what might that look like for us in the direction that we're headed? Now, listen, this is not a fear-mongering message this morning, right? I'm not trying to generate a bunch of fear in you. All I want to show you in this one point is raise this from the text and say, it's normal, not exceptional. Then I want to show you how Peter says, and God through Peter says, we should deal with it, Okay? There's several ways, five or six ways that you might suffer for doing good in the current cultural climate in which we live. And that you should expect that, not be surprised by it. It shouldn't catch you off guard. One, we may begin to lose the freedom to articulate and express uniquely Christian beliefs. And the terms that are lumped under the umbrella of hate speech will continue to grow and escalate. And so that list will get longer and longer of terminology that is considered to be hate speech. In fact, in the wake of all the tra- of the tragic shooting that took place in Orlando on last Sunday, I was watching one local news affiliate here in Dallas. It was interviewing a gay man in the Dallas community, and in the over the cor- in the course of that interview, one of the things that he said uh, really struck me because he said this. He says, if you are standing against same-sex marriage, you are standing with terrorists. If you are standing against same-sex marriage, then you're standing with terrorists. Because he took one incident that took place in an Orlando nightclub, and he said, if you are, if you have similar convictions about marriage between, being between one man and one woman for one lifetime, then you must be standing alongside in locked arms with those who would go to great lengths to eradicate the earth of all the peoples who disagree with them. If you're standing against same-sex marriage, then you're standing with terrorists. And that seems to be a common cultural understanding as we move further into the 21st century. Is that those things that are considered to be hate speech, not just disagreement about someone's lifestyle, and yet I would still love you and serve you and pour my life out for you. But if you say one word about disagreeing with someone, all of a sudden you're labeled as a bigot, as a hater, right? Haters are going to hate. So you get labeled as those who engage in lobbing bombs of hate speech across the fence. And that will only grow. Two, you may lose educational and job opportunities, career advancement, and business freedom due to these beliefs. 
Listen, for, for a very long time, for the 240 years that we've existed as a nation, that for, for over the course of the probably 225 of those years or so, the, the, or 200 of those years, the church has been at the center of American culture. At the center of American culture. To the degree that if you were a businessman in the probably 40s and 50s, if you wanted to like, do good business in the little town that you were in, you were probably a member, probably a member of the First Baptist Church or the First Methodist Church. Why? It was just good business practice because you had networking opportunities there. You wanted to be seen as a good, upstanding member of your community there. And so it brought you capital, right? Social capital to be seen in those places and with those peoples. As the winds have shifted in our nation, it's no, it's no longer that way. You can run a great business in a town and never set foot in the doors of First Baptist or First Methodist or any church for that matter. And so the reality is, as the winds have shifted, there may be some of us who lose educational opportunities. Your intellectual credibility will be questioned if you say, yes, I am a Christian and I'm unashamed of Jesus. Your intellectual credibility will be questioned. And even though there are laws on the books to, to um, limit discrimination based upon religious beliefs, they may not hire you. The stated reason may not be for religious belief, but that may be the underlying current. It may be a contributing factor. So that, that's another way that we could suffer for doing good. You may lose influence in schools and government and society in general. Fourth, there may be an ever-increasing perception of evangelicals as intolerant, divisive, and backward. Fifth, you may suffer emotionally and socially by being left out and feeling like you've been abandoned. And it may come, as it has in other places around the globe, it may come to the fact that we may suffer bodily and physically as a result of it. There's all kinds of ways that you could suffer for doing good. And Peter says, none of those, none of those should surprise you. None of those should shock you. You should not think any of those to be strange. Suffering is normal. It is not exceptional. And so how do we respond? Several things Peter tells us in the text here that I want us to drill down into in the time that we have left to help us understand in this new cultural climate in which we are now entering, how is it that Christians should respond? First thing that Peter tells us is this. He says, rejoice not in spite of, but because of your suffering. Now listen, that, that doesn't sound right to our ears, does it? <laughs> it doesn't sound right to my ears. He doesn't say rejoice even though you're suffering. He doesn't say rejoice despite the fact that you're suffering. He doesn't say rejoice in spite of the fact that you're encountering these hardships and trials. He says rejoice because of them. That's what he says in verse 14. He says if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. In other words, you're rejoicing not in spite of the fact that you're going through the insults, not in spite of the fact that people are maligning you, not in spite of the fact that people are calling you a bigot, not in spite of the fact that they're labeling you as a hater. But you're rejoicing because of that. Why? Why in the world that's so counterintuitive in our culture? Now listen, let me go ahead and say at the very outset of this point, I'm not saying that Peter's going, yes, sign me up for all the pain you can possibly dish out. 
right? He's not saying that we should have an unhealthy attraction toward or desire for suffering in our lives. In fact, some of us are sitting there this morning going, man, don't they have like therapies and medication for people like that? They're like, yeah, give it to me. Bring it on. I want it. I'm hungry for it. That's not what Peter's saying. That's not what he's saying at all. But rather he's saying that we should rejoice over not the pain itself, but what the pain produces, what the suffering produces, and what lies at the end of its path. In verse 14, Peter says, if you're insulted, maligned, ridiculed for the name of Christ, you'll be blessed. In this text, Peter, see, here's, here's, here's where the, the rub is for you and I with this text, is that in our minds, we have suffering and blessing on opposite ends of a spectrum, don't we? We have suffering over here and blessing over here. But Peter says they are not opposite ends on the spectrum, but rather you can experience one through the other. And we have a, such a hard time holding that together in our minds. We have such a hard time understanding how it is that blessing and suffering are not polar ends of a spectrum, but they are actually held together as one experience, that you are blessed as you suffer or when you suffer. We can't reconcile those things together. Listen, you want proof of that? Go peruse social media for a little while. All right? Just go take a look at people's Facebook page, their Instagram, their Twitter feed. Go, take a, go peruse social media for a little while, and what you're going to find is this. So you're going to find over here, right, on the blessing side, that's where I think I had it, over here you had blessing, right? And so you're going to have people talking about, man, I just got this promotion at work, hashtag blessed. Man, I just bought a new Escalade, and it's got like 29-inch rims, right? Hashtag blessed. So thankful, right? Or I just, we just, we just got a new house, or our house just sold. Hashtag blessed. So grateful. But you don't have people over here going, man, we, our house has been on the market for 17 months. Hashtag blessed. I got passed over again. For the promotion. I got passed over again for the advancement. Hashtag blessed. The relationship didn't work out. It failed again, and I'm left by myself once more. Hashtag blessed. See, we don't hold those two things together. Those two things are opposite ends of the spectrum in our mind, but the Bible brings them together. It says, no, you, you can and will experience one through the other. That when you are insulted, that when you are passed over, that when you are dumped, that when you are abandoned, when everyone else walks away from you, whenever they malign you, whenever they ridicule you, when you become the topic of conversation around the office water cooler because of your religious convictions, and because of your conversations that you've leaned into in those contexts, when, you, when that happens to you, you are blessed. That's what Peter says. If you're insulted, maligned, or ridiculed for the name of Christ, you will be blessed. But why? Why? Where does the blessing come from in that? Where does the blessing come from? Peter tells us. Listen to what he says. Because this is, this, as I saw this this week, it was like a light went off in my mind. This is what he says. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Later on in verse 14, he says, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Here's what Peter is saying. Is that whenever you are maligned, insulted, ridiculed, passed over and dumped. Even if you are physically beaten. When you suffer all kinds of the multifaceted sufferings for doing good as a Christian in this life. He says, you will be blessed because the Holy Spirit will rest on you in a way that he would not otherwise. The spirit of glory and of God will rest upon you. Have you ever stopped and just thought to yourself, I don't know that I can endure much more? Have you ever been there? <laughs> I have. And all of you are lying. Have you ever stopped and said, I don't know that I can take much more? Or ever looked at somebody else's life? And seeing all the trials that they have been enduring and the, the kind of fiery furnace that they've been in. And you're going, man, I don't know how they make it through that. Or you turn on the television and you see you know, new reports this, you know, the next day of television commentators talking about how Christians are narrow and backwater. And how they have no intellectual credibility. And how their convictions are intolerant. You see all this, what's the first thing that rises in your heart in those moments? Is it angst or is it joy? Peter says it should be joy, not angst, not fear, but joy. And you go, how in the world, how in the world can, whenever I, I am talked, people talk behind my back and to my face, and they pass me over, how in the world can joy rise in my heart? Peter says, because the joy isn't coming from you, but it's coming from him. And you wonder, how in the world do they endure that? Listen, they are not enduring it alone. They are not enduring it alone. But God's grace is empowering them to endure it in a way that they would, they would never have experienced God's grace in, in, in any way, shape, or form outside of what they're walking through right now. The same is true for us as his church, as his people in this world. Listen, the spirit of God and the glory of God rests upon us in those moments. God is the one enabling us to endure. Have you ever stopped at the, at the end of a season of suffering or trial and you look back and you go, man, I was white knuckling God with all my grip strength. And in reality you were, but you know what? You know what you didn't see? He said, as you, had a, as you were a white knuckle in God's hand, his other arm was wrapped up underneath you just like a father with his child carrying you through the store. He is the one empowering you to endure. He is the one equipping you to persevere. And so in those moments in which you're insulted, ridiculed, maligned, passed over, dumped, Peter says, you are blessed because the Spirit of God rests upon you in a way that it would not otherwise. To empower you for that very moment, that very occasion. And listen, though this text is explicitly about, I want to say this this morning, this text is explicitly about suffering as a Christian for being a Christian. But the principles there are applicable to all kinds of suffering. Some of you have said to me before, I don't know if I could ever recover from the loss of a child. If I lost my, if my son or my daughter died, I don't know if I ever could recover. You know what? In your own strength, you couldn't. But by God's grace lifting you like that arm under your bottom, you can. 
I don't know that I'll ever recover from the divorce. And God brings his arm up underneath you, and you do. I don't know if I'll ever recover from being terminated, being fired, and God brings his arm up underneath you, and you do. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So you're blessed. So you will rejoice, not in spite of, but because of our suffering. Because in those moments, the spirit flexes in our lives in a way that he doesn't otherwise. Second thing, second way to respond. If you're going to rejoice in that, you've got to know something as well. You've got to know that some things can only be put in you and some things can only be pulled out of you through suffering. Some things can only set roots in your heart and soul and some things can only be uprooted through suffering. In verse 13 we read this. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Now the closest reference to this kind of language in, in all, the other, all the rest of the Bible is in this same book. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6 and 7 where it reads as follows. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen, in both those texts, you have the idea of the purifying effect of trials that test our faith through fire. And while in chapter 1, the idea of refinement is explicit, in chapter 4, it's implied. The fire continues to purge, the fire continues to purify, the fire continues to cleanse. Uh, last week, I had the opportunity, uh, before I went to camp with our students, to fly out to Phoenix and, and spend some time with one of the mission partners that we're supporting out there, uh, Wes and Aaron Stecker. They moved from uh, the Dallas area a, a little over a year ago to set some roots for a season in Phoenix to be a part of a church planting residency and team there um, to serve the people of the valley. And so as they, as they settled into the, their course of, of, of residency program there and they found jobs um, and they began to kind of press into what was going on around them in the city. Um, it has not been e an easy road for them. It's been very challenging as they've kind of left friends and family and they moved to a place where they knew no one other than the folks that were kind of bringing them in to train and equip them. And so as they moved into that setting, it's been challenging relationally for them. It's been challenging spiritually for them. It's been a hard road for them. It has not been without bumps and bruises and maybe even a fractured bone. And so as I spent time with them there, part of my, my, the reason for going there was just trying to encourage them in this season that they find themselves in. The last night that I was with them before I flew to camp, my Wes and his oldest son, Will, who's now 10, uh, we all jumped in the truck and we went to get some uh, to Joe's Italian ice. I just, it was, man, it was so good. These last several days, I've just kind of, my, my mouth has been salivating thinking about Joe's Italian ice. It was so good. But on the way back... Uh, Will, who, who is an incredibly brilliant young man, right? He, he just, he's a vor voracious reader. Um, he thinks very intellectually for, at the age of 10. So he begins to pose this question to his dad. I'm sitting in the passenger seat. His dad's sitting in the driver's seat. poses this question to his dad. Dad, I'm going to give you a metaphor. Anytime a 10-year-old starts off with that, Dad, I'm going to give you a metaphor. It's like, this is going to get deep. Right? Dad, I'm going to give you a metaphor. 
Let's say you have two friends, one that you've known all your life and you've, you've, he's been trustworthy, he's shown himself to be true over and over and over and over again in your life. And he's encouraging you to take a road that, that, that is very thorny, that is full of thistles, that is full of underbrush, there's no real trail there to navigate, you're just kind of walking alongside of him as he kind of guides you through all of the ups and downs, the twists and turns, the highs and the lows. But you get another friend, and you've known him a lesser amount of time, but he's relatively trustworthy as well, and he's telling you to take the same, a, a different road. It's going to lead to the same destination. So both roads lead to the same destination, in his little metaphor he's got in his mind here. And the other road's full of gumdrops and candy and roses, no thorns, just flowers. And it's full of, like, you know, ice cream every five miles, or you can just kind of pick up some ice cream and just hammer it down and keep going. Right, Joe's Italian ice is all over the place. Right, you just keep moving toward the same destination, just on different paths. He said, Dad, I want to trust the one who's been with me all my life and has been trustworthy. At this point, I began to realize this hadn't just taken an effect on a toll on Wes and Aaron, but on their kids as well. But Dad, why does he keep leading us down this harder path if the other path would get us to the same place? And so both of us, seminary trained, pastors sitting in the front seat of the truck with his 10-year-old, giving us, dropping this metaphor on us in the back seat. I'm sitting there. I'm like, I'd love to see where this, I'm see where this is going. <laughs> and so Wes, Wes, before he responds, he goes, Will, man, that's a great question. Before I tell you what I think, I'm going to ask Shannon what he thinks. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there, and I'm like, he did, didn't he? And I, it's, it, it, listen, it's not my wisdom. It didn't come from me. It's all only by God's grace. Because it's like, the, uh, like I'm, I'm like waiting for him to go drop some kind of big bomb of wisdom on his son. And I'm like, got nothing, man. I'm sitting here just waiting for it. And all of a sudden in my mind pops this thought. And I said, Will, let me ask you a question. Even if both roads lead to the same destination, will they get you there as the same person? He goes, no, they won't. And that is so true, isn't it? So true. Because there's only some things that can be put in us and some things can be pulled out of us only through suffering. Only through the fire. See, for some of us right now, we're in a place, in a season, in a time in our lives where God is seeking to plant the virtues of perseverance and patience and humility and joy and compassion and love and gentleness. He's seeking to plant things in the garden of our souls that can only be planted there, that can only set root there through suffering. And some of us right now are in a place where God is trying to pluck things from the garden of our soul that will only be uprooted through the hardships that we endure. He's trying to pull up perhaps things like pride and unrighteous displays of anger in our lives. Maybe he's trying to pull out that harshness or the pervasive laziness that exists within us or our endless and idolatrous quest for 
Things like approval from other people or control of our circumstances or, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, or, um, I'm drawing a blank, or comfort or power. God is trying to pull some of those things out of our soul, plant other things within us. And some of that only happens through suffering. The easy road might get you there to the same place, but it will not get you to there as the same person. A couple of quotes I read this week that really drove this down for me. Charles Spurgeon said, Only those who dive deep in the sea of affliction bring up the greatest pearls. You're not going to find the mass of pearls walking along the shoreline. They're going to be found deep within the sea. And Samuel Rutherford said it this way. He said, I accept being put into the cellars of suffering because the great king keeps his wine there. That's where it ages. If you're going to rejoice, you've got to know that God's spirit is resting upon you to empower you to do so. And there are things that he's working to put in you and things that he's working to take out of you in the midst of these painful trials. So as you walk through them, here's what you need to do. Most of us, we ask this question very easily. Why, God? Right? You ever been there? Again, all of you are lying except me. Right? So why, God? Why are you putting me through this? But the question that Peter has for us is what? God, what are you trying to pull out of me? What are you trying to plant in me? And for some of us, God is putting us through extended seasons of trial, extended seasons of pain. And as we as a nation, as a church in this nation, begin to move forward, God is going to put us in the, through the fire to pull some things out of us because he's trying to get some of us to a point where the pain of staying the same begins to outweigh the pain of change in our lives. So he's pull, planting and he's plucking and he's planting and he's plucking in our lives. Finally, this morning, listen to what Peter has to say to us. The third thing about responding to the suffering that we're, we're encountering and will encounter. Peter says at the very end of the text in verse 19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter says, Entrust your soul to God and bless those who hate you. Entrust your soul to God and bless those who hate you. Peter calls God not here a faithful Savior. He doesn't call him a faithful Redeemer. He doesn't call him a faithful friend. He calls him a faithful Creator. Why? I've been thinking about that this week a little bit. Here's why I think Peter calls God a faithful Creator here. Because in those moments of intense fire in our lives, we feel like we're being pulled apart. We feel like God is not in control. We feel like God has left the building. In fact, some of us, some of us over the course of these last several months have woken up and we've turned on the news in the morning and gone, man, I don't know if the church is going to survive the current cultural climate of our nation. And Peter says, you know what? When you begin to suffer... When pre the pressure rises in your life and the pain becomes intense, he says you entrust your soul to a faithful creator, 
the one who is sovereign, the one who has spoken all things into being, the one who still rules, the one who still reigns, the one who's still seated on the throne, the one who's still above all. So you'll look up to him because there is no place higher to look. And you bow down to him because, there is, there, because he's with the lowly. He's, he's high and he's low, but he's not middle class. So you don't hang on to control for yourself, but you entrust your soul to him. Because he's the one who's created it. He's like the manufacturer of your soul. and He's the only one who warranties it. and He's the only one who can perform work on it. And so you lift it up to him and you entrust it, you commit it to his charge. So as you face suffering, you commit yourself and your soul to him. Saying, God, you are still in, in control. You're still in authority. You still have power. You still have dominion. To you be dominion forever and ever, as Peter has said elsewhere in the text. God, I'm not going to take things into my own hands. I'm going to leave, leave my hands open-handed and give my soul to you because I know you made it and only you can warranty it and only you can work on it. And so every morning when you wake up in the midst of those pressurized and painful circumstances that you might find yourself in, you entrust your soul to God. And those who are gathered at the water cooler, who are maligning you, insulting you, slandering you, you know what you do? You continue to bless them. You continue to do good to them. You continue to move towards them and not draw away from them. Those who would call you a bigot, those who would call you backwards, those who would call you intolerant, you know what you do? You continue to love them and speak well of them. You continue to seek their good and pursue it. You continue to lay your life down for their sake. You entrust your soul to them. Or you entrust your soul to him while doing good to them. Now, a couple of things I want to say as, as, as we close. And I want to apply this in a couple of ways to your life. And here's what I want to do. I'm going to start at the trailhead, Right? Um, because it's kind of the base of the mountain where it's kind of wide and broad application. I want to move toward the summit to the particular issue in this text here. I'm going to start with a wide application, all kinds of suffering. I want to move toward the summit and the pinpoint of this text. So here's what I want to say about entrusting your soul to God. Listen, it might start for at the base in disease or in physical pain. There are men and women in this congregation who have fought against diseases that have ravaged their bodies now for 10 years. And I'm so grateful. I, I got a text from Melanie Provo earlier uh, this week. Some of you saw her post on Facebook about being in remission once again. How grateful she is. She has fought disease in her body for 10 years. She's lost her mother to cancer, lost her father to cancer, all in the last nine months. And as she's fought it for 10 years. But in the midst of painful diseases and debilitating diseases, here's what traditional religion would tell you to do. Traditional religion would tell you, hey, you know what? Your body's just kind of a carrying case for your soul. You'll be good, man. Suck it up. The counsel of this culture will tell you that this life is all that there is. And so you go, through, go to any cost to alleviate all of your pain and make the best of what you have because there's nothing outside of this. But the Bible comes along and doesn't say either of those things to us. The Bible says that the body is more than a carrying case for your soul and it is a part of who you are. 
So you'll be resurrected from the grave one day, and you'll be reunited with your soul one day in this glorious, eternal, physical reality called heaven. So it's more than a carrying case for your soul, but there's much more to this life than what you can see and sense with your five senses. There's more coming on the horizon, and the best is somewhere out there, not right here. And so what you do with an unexpected diagnosis is you wake up in the morning and you entrust your soul to God as you fight against the pain of the disease, knowing that God, who has the power to heal, and God, who has the power to one day raise your lifeless body from the ground to reunite with your soul, to enjoy him forever. You continue to fight and you continue to push. But you say, you know what, God? You're the only one who's the manufacturer of my soul. You warranty it. You can fix it. And you can reconstitute this feeble, frail body one day to enjoy your glory forever. So I'm going to trust it to you. I'm going to trust it to you every day when I wake up. Second, in loneliness, in loneliness, and this may speak to where some of you are this morning, in loneliness, some of you experience the pain of feeling attracted to someone that is out of bounds for you. You might experience the pain of being attracted to an individual if you're married that is not your spouse. Some of you are there right now. And that's why God brought you here this morning. You're attracted to an individual that you're not married to. Some of you may be single and you're attracted to an individual who is not a believer. You find this overwhelming, compelling urge to spend time with them. You find them to be physically attractive. You find them to be witty and funny. But they don't share similar foundational convictions about life and about God and about the aim and purpose and trajectory of their existence. You find yourself in this cycle season of loneliness because you're attracted to someone who's not a believer. Some of you may be in the room this morning and struggling with an attraction to someone of the same sex. That God's put out of bounds and you're struggling with loneliness You're not acting on it, but you're struggling with loneliness right now because you feel like there's nothing for you. And so it's painful for you and you're suffering because your heart, your flesh is desiring one thing and you're fighting against it. That's a part of what it means to suffer as a Christian at times. When your flesh is pulling you one direction and the the truth of God's word is is setting boundaries for you. Saying, no, you can't cross that fence and you can't play in that field. And so it's setting boundaries for you, and you're suffering, and you feel the pain of loneliness on your chest. See, what traditional religion would tell you is this. Traditional religion would tell you to to deny and suppress the attraction. In other words, don't even admit that it's there. Don't even deal with it. Ignore it. Put it behind you, and just buck up and move on, cowboy. That's what traditional religion would tell you to do. The council of our culture would tell you to do this. They would say, you know what? Life is about you being you. Life is about making you happy. Whatever your heart desires, pursue it. Head in that direction. That's what the counsel of our culture would tell you. But what the gospel tells us is this, that you shouldn't deny the fact that the attraction is there, but you also shouldn't indulge the attraction to someone that God has put out of bounds for you. If you're married and you're attracted to someone in the office who is not your spouse, You shouldn't deny the fact that the attraction is there and lie to yourself, but you shouldn't indulge it. What should you do? You should entrust yourself to God. If you're single and you're attracted to an unbeliever and it's painful and you're lonely, 
because you're trying to honor Jesus and obey him. But there's a pain that exists in your heart. And you know, see, the, 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 the traditional religion would say, you know what, you're wrong for feeling that way. Deny it, suppress it, get rid of it. The council of our culture would say, you know what? It doesn't matter if they're a believer or not. They're going to make you happy. You're going to make them happy. It's going to be this nice, long, happily ever after kind of deal. Man, go for it. But the gospel says, and the Bible teaches, you don't deny that it's there and suppress it, but you don't indulge it. You entrust that desire and that attraction to God. And for those of you who are attracted to the same somebody with the same sex, it's the same reality. God has put it out of bounds. So you wake up every morning with loneliness. With loneliness because you feel like there's no one out there for you that God has ordained. And every morning you wake up and you entrust that to God. So in disease, in loneliness, and finally, in persecution. In persecution. Some of us may be experiencing something similar to what Peter's audience was experiencing when he writes, if you're insulted for the name of Christ. Some of you have, who have publicly been unashamed of Jesus, you may find yourself in a place right now where people are labeling you as intolerant, as divisive, as backwards, either to your face, behind your back, or online somewhere, right? Everybody starts off their Facebook post with like, you know those people, <laughs> they're talking about you. If you find yourself in that position, traditional religion would tell you withdraw from the culture and create your own little enclave where everyone believes like you do and you can all just kind of hang out together. The council of our culture would tell you that you can have a public life as long as you leave your private morality and religion in the closet and don't speak about it. But the gospel tells you, scripture teaches us that we speak the truth in love as we move into public life. Not leaving our, our convictions in the closet, but bringing them out into the foyer and onto the front porch of our lives. And whenever we're maligned for it, we bless them. We move towards them. Whenever we're insulted and persecuted, we pour our lives out for the sake of those people and loving them. And they have a need that comes up in their life. You don't say, yeah, they were talking about me last week. I'm not moving towards that. You say, I want to be the first one to sign up. You need help moving? That's big. I'm going to come help you move. You need help? You just had a baby? I'm going to bring you a meal. You just lost a child? I'm going to come sit with you while you cry and grieve. No matter what you say to my face or what you said behind my back, you entrust your soul to him while doing good. The band's gonna come and lead us in a couple of songs this morning. And as they do, we're gonna share the Lord's table together. And as they come, we're gonna have men who are gonna come and serve the elements at each of these tables. We'll ask you, if you're a believer this morning, I wanna invite you to come and take of the, the, the body and the blood of our Lord that was broken and shed for you. Whether you're a member of this church or not, I want to invite you to come to the table and receive these elements. If you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to sit and watch as we remember the body and blood of our Lord that was, that was broken and shed for us. And one of the things that came 
to mind this week as I prepared for this message was the fact that when Peter says, entrust your souls to God, he's not asking you to do something that he himself has not done. In Luke chapter 23, Jesus is hanging on the cross in all of his agony, in all of his pain, after he's been beaten and whipped and tortured and, 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 and abused and insults hurled at him, as he hangs there, he looks up into the heavens and he says, Father, into my hands I commit, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last. Jesus' final words were God, it's the exact same word in the Greek, God, I entrust my soul to you. So you can be sure that you can entrust your soul to him because he entrusted his soul to his Father for you. Let me pray for us. Father, we come today thanking you for your grace and mercy that is ours in Jesus Christ. As we come to the table and as we take of the bread and of the cup, God, we are reminded of all of your goodness to us in Christ. And may we feed on him this morning. May he enable and empower us to live as sojourners in this life, as men and women who have said yes to Jesus no matter the cost, as men and women, as teenagers who would seek to obey, who would seek to obey the truth of, of, of the gospel, would you help us remember it's normal, not exceptional, that you are with us in the midst of it to hold us up. There are some things you're planting and some things that you're plucking. And what we must do is entrust our souls to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.